Good morning. There we go. Nice to see you this morning. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF Valley, and again, it's great to see you here this morning. I'm not going to ask how tired you are. We're just going to move on from that, Uh, but it's great to see you here this day Uh, and uh, to be able to worship the Lord together. GCF exists to glorify God. We do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. That is uh, what we're about. That's That is our mission statement, and one of the things that we knew and continue to know really daily is that if we're going to make any attempt at fulfilling that, of moving in that direction, of really fulfilling the calling that God has for us, that's going to need a lot of prayer. We need to undergird that in prayer, an absolute dependency on the Holy Spirit of God as we come to him in prayer And so I trust that you are praying. Uh, Here is a helpful way. This is our 23 days of prayer. Uh, I don't know if we call this a campaign. That sounds not like the right word. So it's just 23 days of prayer. Uh, This actually begins on Saturday. And you can find these. These are just, it'll give you a, a prayer point for every day, 23 days, starting this Saturday, leading up to Easter. Some of you have asked, like, why 23 days? Why not 26 days? What's... There's nothing holy about 23, we live in 2023. So if we lived in 2001, you'd have one day of prayer. Make it a good one. But this is 23 days of prayer uh, leading up to Easter. And so I hope that that we will together pray uh, for us here at GCF and beyond that as well. These are out at at the welcome table. You can also get some of these online uh, if you'd like a, a, a different copy of that. If you have your Bibles, we'll continue in our series here in the Gospel of Mark. You can turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and I'll be reading starting at verse 32. I'm going to read the entire section through verse 45. Our main emphasis this morning will be really on verses 32 through 40. I'll pick up next week verses 41 through 45 because that is uh, a key section. It'd be too much to do in one sermon, and I know you're saying thank you. While you're uh, turning, uh, speaking of uh, next week as well, uh, we have the privilege of of really hosting our central church. They will be out here next week at 1 p.m. for their worship service. The reason they're doing that is because there's a whole bunch of uh, painting and pulling out pews and a whole bunch of changes being made at the central church uh, this next week and the week following. So they will be out here at 1 p.m. This is an open invitation on behalf of Pastor Brad and Pastor Dave You are all welcome to join them as they worship 1 p.m. next Sunday. And uh, even as maybe we are leaving and they are coming, it's a great chance to say hi to some folks as well. So just be aware of that uh, next Sunday. If you have your Bibles, uh, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, I pray now that I might decrease and that Christ would increase, that he would be uppermost in our hearts and in our minds, and that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us in your word. Lord, you and you alone have words of life. So speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are seeing a very clear pattern develop here in Mark's gospel, and it's, it's a very simple pattern. Jesus says hard things, and his own disciples don't understand what he's saying. Jesus is clear about what he's going to do, and his disciples remain clueless and would rather talk about what they want to do. Jesus plainly states his mission, and his disciples plainly tell him their mission. It all sounds familiar, doesn't it? It may even be kind of how some of us lived this last week. Jesus says this, well, we actually want that. Jesus speaks definitively, we want to negotiate terms with him. Jesus answers our prayers, but we're not real wild at how he answered them. And so three times here in Mark's gospel, Jesus has said some very hard things to his disciples, specifically about his mission, about his purpose. And all three times, immediately after the disciples hear this, they make the same mistake. The first time, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus tells them that he must suffer and die. And you may remember, Peter hears this and rebukes Jesus. That's not going to happen, Jesus. Not on my watch. That's not going to happen to you. And the second time Peter or Jesus predicts his suffering and death is in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Mark chapter 9, verse 32, we read, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. So instead of asking Jesus, maybe for some clarification, what do you really mean by that, Jesus? Remember what the disciples were doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who should be applauded? How do we get that? How do we be first in line? So if you are keeping score, the disciples are 0 for 2, and I don't think they're trending in a good direction. The third time that Jesus declares his ultimate mission, we read in our text, verses 32 through 34, and so for the third time, we're actually not all that surprised, are we, when we read in verses 35 through 40, that his own disciples still don't get it. They still don't understand what Jesus is really all about. Three times Jesus explains exactly what he is about to do. And three times his disciples, well, they have other ideas. Three times it's as if it's written over their face, does not compute. Now reading reading the failures of the disciples, reading their mistakes as we do here in the Gospel of Mark should actually cause us all to trust God's word way more than hopefully we already do. Because Mark, you remember, he wasn't one of the apostles, but he got his information from Peter, who was. And Peter, for all of his weaknesses and sins and mistakes, and we have looked at those, have we not? I mean, Peter doesn't sugarcoat anything. I mean, if I were Peter, would you want people 2,000 years later reading about all of your foibles and mistakes? That's the stuff you don't put in there. You keep that out. But Peter doesn't seem to mind all that much. So you can actually trust what you read here in God's word. It's going to tell you the truth. There's no hidden agenda. There's, there's no convenient glossing over some of the facts that maybe are less than ideal in some of the circumstances that we would rather not talk about. That's not the case at all. Brothers and sisters, you can trust every word that you read in the Bible. And beyond that, when you consider all that the disciples have been eyewitnesses to in the first half of this book, which really included a whole lot of miracles of Jesus. They had front row seats to Jesus 
calming the storm and casting out demons and healing the lepers. And yet they still didn't quite figure it out. They, they still had all kinds of questions. They didn't understand what Jesus was still up to. Doesn't it make you wonder and say, how patient is Jesus with these guys? I mean, clearly Jesus has far more patience and long-suffering for his disciples than probably most of us have for and with each other. You're just simply not going to find a more patient and compassionate Savior than Jesus. He's the kind of Savior that you need and that I need when Jesus comes to you and calls you to do a hard thing. When he says to you, here's what I want you to do, and sometimes we say, I, I don't want to do that. That seems hard. Maybe we try to negotiate with him. But Jesus is the kind of Savior that we all need. Even when, even when you don't get it three times, or 30 times, or 30,000 times, Jesus is ever faithful, isn't he? To his disciples, to his people. And so for the third time here, Mark could not be any clearer on exactly two things. The mission of Jesus, that's verses 32 through 34. And Mark could not be any clearer on the mistakes of the disciples, but in, this, in our text this morning, it's really James and John who take center stage. So we want to look at both of those this morning, the mission of Jesus and the mistake of James and John. Here's the scene. This is verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, yes, to the holy city, but also to the belly of the beast. Jesus knows exactly what he faces upon his arrival in Jerusalem. Jerusalem means suffering. Jerusalem means rejection. Jerusalem means death. Jerusalem means the cross. And yet Mark indicates that Jesus was walking ahead of his disciples and probably was a, a pretty large group of interested onlookers as well. And isn't it interesting here that Mark says that the people following him, his disciples included, that they were both amazed and afraid. Amazed and afraid. That is a very fascinating combination of emotions. It's not too often, I think, that we experience both amazement and abject fear at exactly the same time. You might be amazed that maybe if it's a, it's a beautiful summer evening, let's just think about that for a moment. And you look up in the stars in the sky and they're brilliantly, and you think, wow, that is, that is so amazing. Yes, indeed. Perhaps amazement is what you feel when your, your spouse remembers your, your birthday. Fear is what you feel when you don't. You're amazed when you go to an NHL hockey game and, and you get to go at the glass and, and you're watching warm-ups and your favorite player throws a puck over the glass and you get it. That's amazing. But there's no fear. I mean, fear is what we feel. Literally, when Mark talks about fear, he's like that shaking in fear. I mean, that kind of, we all have fears. Fear of heights, fear of spiders, fear of snakes, fear of long worms that look like snakes. <laughs> but rarely do we experience this kind of amazement and fear at exactly the same time. And yet, that's what the disciples were experiencing. Intense emotions. Something clearly is going on here. How is it that the disciples on the one hand were amazed and afraid? Well, simply the disciples and many in the crowd here, they're thinking they're going to Jerusalem for battle, for war. This is, this is their D-Day. Jesus is finally going to deal with corruption. He's finally going to defeat the Romans. He's going to restore the kingdom of David. That day has come, finally. And it's going to be amazing, isn't it, when all of that happens, and even more amazing that they're going to be right in the center of it all. But yet there's also a great deal of fear. Will they act with courage? 
Could they be wounded? Might they not even make it out alive? Now what I find so amazing about this whole scene is that Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the lamb is going to be slaughtered. Yet the lamb is leading his own way. Jesus is out in front. And Jesus is always out in front of us. He's always out in front of his people. And so whatever it is that's maybe burdening you this day and whatever, and we all have that. Whatever it is that you think this is impossible, this is complicated. I don't know what's going to happen here. Brothers and sisters, if, if Jesus is your God, he's always out in front of you. He's not lagging behind. He's going ahead of you and before you. He's out in front of you. So don't think for a moment here that the cross was then somehow just, just placed on Jesus. No, he's, he's out in front. He's leading his way, his own way to his death, freely, voluntarily, sacrificially. Jesus is no helpless victim here who suffered some cosmic case of injustice. John makes it clear, John chapter 10, verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, Jesus says, to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's the mission of Jesus. He's about to give up his life. And so the disciples are understandably amazed and terrified at the same time because he is out in front. He is leading the way to the very epicenter of opposition to the scribes, and to the Pharisees. Most of us, if we think about the week ahead, in fact, I was just talking with a brother this morning, and he was looking ahead, and he looked at his Wednesday, and he's like, oh, we don't, we don't do real well with that. And yet here is Jesus going ahead to his death. So we might just take a step back and think, what's really going on here? I mean, is Jesus crazy? Does he have some sort of death wish? Or is he actually about to show the world that he is the true king? That he is the one who will usher in God's kingdom and provide salvation for sinners? Well, let's take Jesus at his word, verses 33 through 34. We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not describing defeat here. Not at all. He's not describing something that's getting in the way of God's plan. He's actually describing God's plan. And so it's not that God the Father wants to send everybody to hell and Jesus at the last minute just kind of sneaks, does a little end around and saves people. No, God the Father and Jesus the Son are in complete unity in their desire to make a way for sinners like us to be made righteous before a holy God. That's the mission of Jesus. That's why he came. And so he did not come to earth simply or merely to give our lives more meaning or to give our lives more purpose. Does he do that? Of course. But Jesus came to bear our sins, to give us life. Jesus came on this earth to die for very respectable people like us who struggle with some very respectable sins. And oftentimes we don't realize that very respectable people like us who struggle with very respectable sins deserve hell. You know the respectable sins that you struggle with. You have yours and I have mine. 
Thankfully, I don't think any of you are physically murdering anybody. It's not very respectable. I don't think you're burning down buildings. But what about impatience? Or gluttony? Or gossip? Or judgmentalism? If you don't think that your respectable sins are such a big deal, then think about all that Jesus endured on your behalf. He was condemned to death, mocked, spit on, flogged, and eventually killed. That was his mission. Now James and John hear that for the third time. They just heard Jesus clearly state his mission, and for the third time, does not compute. Now I wonder if you were following Jesus at this point and you just heard him say what John and G, uh, James and John heard him said, that he's going to be condemned, that he'll be tried as a criminal, that the Son of God will be crucified. I mean, what would you say in that moment? That's right. I don't think we'd say anything, would we? But yet, and maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, it'd probably be best just to remain silent, which is probably, that's, that's usually a good policy. But you may think, well, yeah, I wouldn't have said what James and John said. I mean, clearly those guys didn't get it. I mean, we are much more, we're not as clueless as they are. We pay attention on Sunday mornings. Really? There is a boldness here to the faith of James and John that we're actually going to look at two weeks from now. And we're going to unpack that. But their request here, their response to what Jesus has just said about his mission is mistaken. It's misguided, it's inappropriate, frankly it's just downright sinful. And so we see their hearts are exposed here. Their motives, really the, the true intentions of their hearts, they're, they're given voice before the living God. And it's actually not very pretty. It, it's actually quite ugly. And oftentimes it is the case with us. Sometimes when our hearts are exposed before Jesus, it can be ugly too. So what do we see here? What's going on at, at the heart level here? I want you to notice how sin works its way in and then works its way out of James and John. I think it does that in three ways. Here's the first way. Sin makes us selfish. Sin makes us selfish. Verse 35. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So what James and John are essentially asking and telling Jesus is, Jesus, we'd like to hand you here this blank page, and we would really prefer if you would just sign on the bottom line. Go ahead and endorse that. It is actually amazing, in, in the wrong sense of the word, it's actually amazing how James and John have such little regard or sympathy or compassion for Jesus. I mean, he just told them again exactly what his future lay. And all they can think about is their own future, which they have very clear and definite ideas about how Jesus can help them with their glorious future. And so here we see the DNA of sin. Sin can be very complicated. I'm certainly not trying to um, simplify or oversimplify but really at its root, the DNA of sin is selfishness. And that's why the Apostle Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, that Jesus came to die so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. Living for yourself cannot be your best life. It can't. Life in God's kingdom, life with Jesus as your king, means that, among many other things, that you no longer live to please and satisfy yourself, but now you live to please and satisfy him. You worship him. And that's the very purpose for our being. That we were created, in fact, for a loving, committed relationship with God, and by extension then, a loving uh, relationship with others, with our neighbors. The problem is sin turns us inward on ourselves. 
we curve inward. And when we curve inward, all that we can do then is seek to create and build and fortify the kingdom of self. You might know it as the kingdom of me. It's pretty popular. Selfishness, brothers and sisters, is sometimes why marriages don't make it. It's not poor communication. It's not regular date nights. Selfishness is why there are fights and quarrels among brothers or sisters that have known each other for years. James chapter 4, because those desires take root and then you can't help but express them. They just come right out. A blind selfishness is oftentimes why it's really, really difficult to pay attention to the people in front of you and to the needs in front of you and to the people that Jesus actually wants you to care about. It's almost as if you're just blind to that. Because when your desires and your wants take center stage, you actually become enslaved to indulging them, to whatever they are. And that's where the, the wisdom of the Bible says that's not the way of life. That in, is, in fact, the way of death. And so Jesus has come to save us, to rescue us, and to redeem us from our selfish selves and from that life. That's the first thing we see. Here's the second. Sin makes us self-entitled. Notice the important question that Jesus asks James and John, verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, well, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. I mean, they clearly have an answer. They've thought through this. Thanks, Jesus. I didn't think you'd ever ask us. We've actually come together. We had a really good plan. Here's what we really want. We want to sit in a position of power and authority and honor, right? You can make that happen for us. Well, clearly, James and John are mistaken about what it means to follow a crucified Savior. At this point, do you know what they really want? This is, again, why I love the Bible and its clarity and it doesn't sugarcoat stuff. James and John are looking for a genie Jesus who's going to promise to do whatever they want and whatever they ask. Yeah, we want to be around you, Jesus. We want to be close to you. We don't need to sit in the center. You do that. But you're going to make us VIPs, right? Like we get to go to the front of the line, right? We want that position of honor and prestige, head of the table. You sit in the middle. We'll sit right next to you. Because they really want to follow a genie Jesus, not a crucified king. And perhaps some of us struggle with that as well. If we're honest, all of us struggle from time to time with that. Yes, I'm going to read my Bible, and then I'm just going to rub my Bible a little bit. And then I'm going to offer up some prayers. And isn't Jesus going to grant my wishes? Isn't that what following him means? But yet three times here, brothers and sisters, Jesus has told his disciples very clearly, that if you're going to follow me the way the Messiah, that's a hard road. That is a road of suffering. That is a road of carrying your cross. That is a road of dying to yourself, of getting to the back of the line, willingly getting to the back of the line, finding joy being in the back of the line. And all three times his disciples get it wrong. And so there, we see here the way that sin works in our lives and in our hearts. Sin really pushes to the center pushes us to the center, but not to the center of God's will and not to the center of God's kingdom. It pushes us to the center of my world. And it makes me a slave to whatever it is my passions and desires are. And the real problem, when, when I'm pushed to the center of my world and succumbing to the, whatever the desires and passions and the self-entitlement that I feel, I can't save myself. I can't free myself from my own self-entitled heart. And you can't either. We need a new heart. We need a cleansed heart. We need a heart that is continually being changed by the grace and the mercy and the Holy Spirit of God. It's possible. It's possible that you're here and that you really love Jesus. But actually what you really love most are the things that you think Jesus can do for you and the things that you really want Jesus to do for you. So I wonder how you would answer this question in verse 36, this is Jesus coming to you this morning. What do you want me to do for you? 
what would be the first thing on your list? Make my children easier to parent. Could you make my spouse more agreeable? I could use maybe a different set of friends, better job, more money, more peace, less people asking me to do stuff that I don't want to do. It's not that having more joy in parenting or more peaceful relationships is bad. It's not. But if that's all that you want from Jesus, then you're not actually following the Jesus of the Bible here. You're following a different Jesus, a different version of Jesus. It's one thing to believe that Jesus can do whatever you ask of him. He can. He's that powerful. He's that good. It's one thing to believe that Jesus can do whatever you ask of him. But it's another thing to assume that he should do whatever you ask of him. So yes, Jesus can and does make our lives better. Infinitely better. Of course he does. Praise God. But if that's all your gospel is, come to Jesus and he'll make your life better, then it's not Jesus' gospel because he's not your genie. He died to be your king. Third, sin makes us self-confident. Self-confident. Verses 38 and 39. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, what did they say to him? We got this. No problem, Jesus. We can handle this. We got a plan. We can handle our own business. No need to worry about us. We got it. That's, at its core, a sinful self-confidence. There's almost like a, a sinful in invincibility there. I often think my, one of my daughters is learning how to pole vault, and every time I watch pole vaulters, I think, man, I could do that. But you know what happened if I grabbed a pole and I started running down the runway and I stick that pole in the box and then I fly like a bird upside down? Nothing good. <laughs> I can assure you, that is a bad thing and I should have thought through that a little bit more. My, I shouldn't do stuff like that. But there's this self-confidence that says, well, why can't I do stuff like that? And in this sense, like if Jesus comes to you and says, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't have any idea what you're asking. You should definitely pay attention and listen to him. So here we have this sinful self-confidence of James and John that says, Jesus, we got this. We're totally able. We know. We can handle our own business. You don't have to worry about us. And Jesus is saying to them that, look, you're going to face suffering and you're going to face persecution. You're going to carry your cross. And when that happens, you're not going to be asking about positions of honor and glory. Because rather than being VIPs in God's kingdom, this life of prominence, notoriety, being first in line, Jesus calls his disciples to suffer. And so what he's really saying is, can you, can you guys handle that? Can you handle really what it means to follow me faithfully in this life? And very quickly, James and John are like, yeah, we got that. No worries. Because they fail to see Jesus for who he really is. They're still thinking, Jesus, this is going to be amazing because you're about to get us to the front of the line, right? We're about to see you do some really cool stuff in battle. There's no sense at all of their own spiritual need. There's no sense of their own weakness. There's, there's no real sense of their own vulnerability and Brothers and sisters, that's the course that sin takes in our lives, especially in this self-confident way. We're so self-confident, perhaps, in ourselves that we don't even realize what great danger we are in. So, yes, Jesus does come to you this morning, and he asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Probably don't want to just spit out an answer too quickly. But I do want you to think about that. What is it that you want Jesus to do for you? I'm sure there's a lot of different answers that we could come up with in my own heart this last week as I took some time to meditate through this. Here's my answer. 
Lord, help. Rescue. Come to my aid. I can't deliver myself from my sins. Following Jesus is hard. Amen? It's not without joy, and it's not without hope, but it's hard. Sometimes it feels like he, he asks, us, asks of us what we just don't have. And that is precisely the point. <laughs> we don't. But by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and transforming us, he qualifies us. In our weakness, he is what? He's strong. So yeah, we can't deliver ourselves from our own selfishness or self-interest or self-confidence. I can't. Nor can you live in a way that pleases God so we stand in this position of absolute desperate need. And brothers and sisters, that's a good spot to be in. That's where we understand and experience the transforming grace of the gospel that moves us from living for self to living for Christ, to, to living in the kingdom of me, to being freed up then to live in the kingdom of the Messiah, fully submitted or more and more submitted to the King of kings and Lord of lords. James and John are not quite there yet. They're mistaken. They don't get it. They want to talk about having front row seats, and Jesus is talking about giving up his life for them. Now, James and John do get one thing right, they are right that Jesus is headed for glory. But as for how that glory would come, does not compute. So Jesus must explain to them about his cup. And Jesus must explain to them about his baptism. This is verses 39 through 40. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized but to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So understand what's happening. James and John will not be drinking the exact same cup as Jesus. They will not undergo the same baptism as Jesus. Yes, Jesus calls them, all of his disciples, us included, to suffer, carry the cross, to be willing to lose our life for him. But the cup that Jesus drinks accomplishes something far greater. In the Old Testament, when we read about the cup, most often it is a metaphor for the very wrath of God. And so we read in Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Habakkuk. 2.16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The, the cup is not a good thing. James and John, are, are they going to drink that cup? Will you drink that cup? Will I? I mean, nobody in their right mind wants to drink that cup because that is the cup of God's wrath. I mean, that is worse than anything that could come upon Babylon or Israel or any other nation. In Jesus' cup is all the evil of every sinner. In the cup of Jesus is all of the holy wrath, the judgment of a holy God against you and against me. That is the cup, brothers and sisters, that Jesus drank on the cross, he consumed all of that, which is why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in his very last breath of human life, Jesus could say it is finished. How could he say that? Because he drank the cup. And in drinking the cup and the imagery here of being baptized unto death, plunged into death, Jesus, the sinless lamb who went out ahead to the cross, he became a curse for us. He became a curse for us. And that is that's really hard to understand. And I can't even come up with, with an illustration to somehow 
fully help you to understand that. I tried. But maybe the best way to understand how Jesus could become a curse for us is simply just to take the opposite of the Lord's blessing, that wonderful blessing that many of us are familiar with in Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord curse you and forsake you. May he burn in anger against you and withhold mercy from you. May he turn his back on you and give you unending hostility. That's the cup that Jesus drank for you, for, for all who have turned to him in repentance and faith. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning by faith, that will be your cup to consume. And you have to drink it. So if you've not found new life in him, that's the cup for you. But for all those who do belong to Christ by faith, it is already done. Jesus drank the cup. There's nothing more to be done. That's not a little thing, brothers and sisters. That is not a little thing that Jesus has done to free us from our sins. He drank the cup. And because of that, every man, woman, boy, and girl who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the wonder of the gospel. Because Jesus drank that cup when you drink the cup of your physical death, and you will at some point, we all will die, it will be a very different cup because Jesus drank the first cup. So yes, you will experience physical death, but in Christ, your physical death becomes what? The glorious entrance into an eternity of joy and happiness. How does that happen? Jesus drank the cup, all of it. And he did it, not because we deserved him to do that, but of the kind, generous, compassion and heart of God as a gift of his grace and mercy, undeserved for all of us. Now that theological lesson there, largely lost on James and John. And as we'll see on most of the disciples, we'll pick this up next week, but they're hot about the fact that they didn't ask what James and John, they're still thinking, why didn't we get to the front of the line? They don't get it. They want that VIP treatment. You know what I think their biggest blind spot is, really the, the big mistake here of the disciples? What did they actually stumble over? The cross. They continue to stumble over the cross. And I'm not talking about the more sanitized versions of the cross that we have today, the cross as a, as a necklace or it's what hangs around our rear mirror in our car. I'm not even talking about singing songs about the cross. They didn't stumble over that. I'm talking about the cross as an instrument of death. I mean, we're not all too comfortable, are we, when we think about this and the idea that Jesus would purposely stay on the road, walk ahead, knowing exactly what befell him, betrayal, condemnation, torture, and death. And let's be honest, we're even a little bit more uncomfortable with the idea that to truly follow him then as his disciple, to truly live life in his kingdom, means that we're actually signing up for that. Suffering, dying to self, putting others before ourselves, counting the cost, maybe, maybe even dying for the sake of Christ. So we might actually have the same reaction here as James and John. Jesus tells us that. Here's what it means to follow me as my disciple. Here's what life looks like in my kingdom. And we say, can we talk about glory? Can we talk about heaven? Can we talk about something other than that? And brothers and sisters, our mistake is that we really don't understand what Jesus is calling us to. So if we're honest, don't we all just want to get ahead? Don't we all just really want to build a name for ourselves? Maybe great reputation. We want to be thought of as wise or competent, and you can fill in the blank. We want to kind of continue to create and build and fortify and strengthen and protect 
the kingdom of me. And yet then we see Jesus. And then we read about Jesus. And we see Jesus going on ahead all the way to the cross. Not because of his sins. But because of ours. And so clearly life in his kingdom is something different. Life in the kingdom of God is far better, in fact. But in order to enter the kingdom of God, as we looked at, we have to be like a little child. Needy, helpless, acknowledging our sins, acknowledging we don't see things, we're blinded, and learning more and more to give up our rights and to surrender to him. Because he does call us to give up everything and to be willing to give up everything to follow him. And the cross means, and we'll look more at this next week, but the cross means then that we actually take up our role and take up our place, not as VIPs in the kingdom of God, but as servants, servants of Christ, servants who willingly see that as a high and holy calling because Jesus is our chief servant because nobody can outserve Jesus because Jesus willingly and voluntarily went to the cross for us so we follow him in obedience and in faith and we actually we look for places and people to serve. Not because we're earning bonus points. Because we're following our king. We're following our crucified, buried, risen, and resurrected king. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly father, pray for your grace, Lord, this week. We want to be aware of our own need. The truth is, Lord, apart from your kind grace to reveal our sins, to reveal, Lord, our areas of hardness in heart and selfishness, we simply won't change. So have mercy on us, Lord, I pray. Would you be especially kind to us that we would recognize our great need for you. And in your kindness, don't leave us there. Show us your great grace. May we experience that because we know you and we love you and we're seeking to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I wouldn't have to. Mark 10, 45, in what many theologians, and I'll include myself in that rare category, it would say that that's the theme verse of the entire Gospel of Mark, which is why we're going to spend next week really diving into that. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to suffer injustice, to suffer hatred out of obedience to God the Father. So we went on ahead to Jerusalem, to the cross, to purchase our very salvation. As we gather for communion there, there's really a, a sobering joy to it. It's sobering because we understand it's our sins that nailed him to the cross. And yet the, the joy of knowing that though our sins are deep, his mercy is more. That he has qualified us for salvation. And that we have responded to him in faith. So if that doesn't describe you here this morning, we'd love to talk with you more about this Jesus. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to follow him in faith, but please refrain from receiving communion. Just a minute, I'll invite you forward. We have both wine and grape juice here. You can come on up, take a piece of bread and the wine or grape juice and go back to your chair and you can eat and drink then. We'll have the 
the two aisles go forward first and then center folks and you, we have two stations here so you can come on through this way. I want to give us just an opportunity to, to go before the Lord in prayer and to silently confess sins before him. So let's do that at this point. Where have you, where have you seen a sinful self-confidence this last week? Where is it that you struggle with selfishness? I'd encourage you to confess those sins before the Lord. Let's pray. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. Our Father, thank you for the freedom that we have to confess our sins before you. And knowing that in Christ there is no more wrath. There is no more condemnation. And so we can know the joy and the freedom of being forgiven of our sins. And that this indeed is a gift from a glorious God. To sinners like us who don't get it right the first, second, third time. Our need is far greater, and your mercy and kindness is far deeper. So thank you that the gospel is really good news. Thank you, Jesus, that you are really good news for every heart here this morning. Every one of us, Lord, has areas to grow, so be gracious to us. Thank you for your enduring patience and your faithfulness to your people. Lord, you are out in front. Give us eyes to see you out in front of us this day and this week, I pray. And we'll give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to come forward.